Thomas Aubert has been in charge of world archery events for the last several years, kind of walked into the job right around the time of the greatest crisis in the history of any modern sport, not just archery, but every sport. But we're not here to talk about that so much as we are to talk about this event here in Gwangju, Korea, some general observations, and anything else you want to talk about. Sure, let's go. So, Tama, this has been uh, 15 days for you, but 10 days for most of us who are participating here in Gwangju. I've been to a lot of World Cups. I like this one. They did a great job. Yeah, uh, to be honest, it's, it's really a great level. Uh, they delivered an amazing event so far. I mean, I've been there in Korea uh, for an event since 2009, and it's, it, they delivered a really great event, and the city is really involved, which is, which is always nice to have as well as a sport. Isn't that the amazing thing? I mean, you look around this city, the city is a city of one and a half million people. It's the sixth largest city in South Korea in terms of population, and I think area as well. Everywhere you go, there are banners on huge buildings. I, I noticed a few more that I hadn't seen before today, just coming back from the venue. Just huge banners about archery, about this event in particular, but about archery in general. Gwangju kind of is the spiritual home of Korean archery, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, again the, the community here is really involved with archery. Uh, they've been hosting the university in 2015, so out of that remain the field on which we shot the qualification. It's also the home of the Gwangju University team, which is where Ansan, Jamie Soon, and Kibobe were trained. Uh, so yeah, the city is really involved. They're they're really on top of promotion for the event. Uh, they were also on top of promotion when I came here a few months ago for the evaluation of their candidature for the 2025 World Championship. And to be honest, the branding you saw for that event was the same just for the visit. So it's it's really amazing on on how much they push to get archery back in Korea and in Guangzhou on a regular basis. Let me let me go back to the beginning of our conversation though. A year ago. We had some World Cups, zero audiences. A year before that, we didn't even know when we could have another World Cup. Now we had a World Cup today. Uh, the finals were today for the compounds, tomorrow for the recurves as we speak. Pretty enthusiastic crowd, a Korean crowd, a crowd of archers as usual, uh, people from around the community supporting the sport. I, I kind of think of this, of Gwangju, you know, we think of Yankton as being a town it's a small town, but it's a town that really supports archery. I'm seeing the same thing here in a city of a million and a half people. Yeah, and, and, and that's really what makes the difference. And, and, and I think that's where the really great potential for archery here is the whole city is behind their athletes. I mean, again, when I came for, the, for that visit uh, in November, uh, the ambassador of the World Championship candidate were Kibobe and Ansan, and we couldn't walk five minutes in the city without being stopped for autographs. Yeah, you told uh, me one of the fixers that came along to help with communication between yourself and Ansan and some of the other people had also worked some big celebrities who had come to South Korea in the past, right? Yeah, yeah, and and and, and that person that was used as a translator at that time uh, translated for uh, Hollywood stars like George Clooney when they came in Korea. And she was more enthusiastic to work on that candidature because she actually could meet Ansan, yeah. which is unbelievable. Yeah, but then, as unbelievable as it is, you pull into a parking lot, you see large, you know, tour buses, and Ansan is her image is on the bus, right? Yeah. And that kind of thing. It's it's just a, you know, in the past we've talked about um, how 
archery stars in Korea are treated like basketball stars or football stars in, in uh, Europe or in America. It's not an exaggeration. They really are true uh, celebrities here. And it's kind of nice to see that, you know, they're, they're part of our sport. They're still very accessible to people like us. But here among the general population, they're idolized. It's, it's really kind of cool. Yeah, and, and for me, it's already, I think, a sign of great hope for many other countries to show them that it is possible to have athletes, archery athletes, that are stars in their country. It requires maybe a lot of work, a lot of preparation, a lot of marketing, a lot of engagement as well, but there is hope, and if they can do it here, there is no reason why it couldn't be done anywhere else. You just listed a number of things that need to be done. It's all work-related things, like promotion, like a successful program, obviously. All as archers look to Korea as kind of that benchmark for how things ought to be done, I think. And I think we're seeing evidence of that at this event too. They really pulled out all the stops. Yeah, clearly. And and the way the way it's managed here in, in Korea and especially for that event, but also for all other kind of, of event and like the preparation for the games, the the, the setup they, they do when they prepare the games, is that they treat those kind of competition as event. And that's where Enfys is the difference between competition and event. They're not just having an archery shoot at 70 or 50 meters and scoring and giving awards to the winners. They're engaging the people around that event. They created, they're creating an experience for all the people involved, the, the fans, the LOC, the volunteers, everybody is involved and, and it makes a real event out of that archery competition. And that dovetails well with the way that the World Cup has evolved since 17 years ago when it was first conceptualized by Dr. Erdner as part of the World Archery Plan at the time. There was a, a five-year or six-year plan at the time. And a World Cup event, a World Cup circuit, was envisioned as part of that. Now it has become what I consider to be a core part of WA's annual offerings. Not just an organization that puts on a world championship every two years, not just an organization that fosters Olympic archery, but that puts out a product that is televisable, that is something accessible to people who aren't necessarily archers. And it has generated a lot of interest in our sport in the non-endemic space, meaning it's not just Hoyt and Easton and Fivix and, you know, name the brands in archery that are supporters of the World Cup, but you've got huge companies like Hyundai, and you've got companies like Turkish Airlines, you've got companies in the past, some of the big Swiss watch companies. Uh, we've had sponsorships from companies that had nothing to do with archery, but that liked the image of the sport and supported world archery because of that image that was created by the World Cup. And that's an active role that you have as well, is maintaining those and growing those relationships as well as finding new sponsors for the sport. Something you are always working on, right? Yes, correct. Uh, and, and also that's part of, of what we try to use the World Cup for and our events in general. I mean, we're building some kind of a pyramid of events that have different level of importance, uh, level of points as well on, on so many level and different level of broadcast. That's also why we renewed what we're doing with world ranking events, trying to give them more importance and also make a product out of it, which was a bit ignored in the past. Um, so the fact that those big companies are, are joining us, are working with us, 
is, is also a sign that archery is interesting to the people out there and and it takes a little effort to find the right angle maybe to find the right connection to talk to those people but there's many options uh, obviously the support of archery manufacturers is is very important and we cannot do without them and we also want to do it with them because at the end we're part of the same industry same family and, and we need those but also we know that maybe there will be also the one helping the athletes directly or or some local organizer and it's also important for us so we try to find the right balance between the support we're asking them and what they have left to help other events other people to grow in the sport as well and it's important that also organizer of that level like world cups are locally sourcing sponsors because that's that's where you open doors if we look at your archery career personally you started out as a top French archer as a junior and then moving into the national team level and the key to that was that you were part of Arc Club de Nîmes. That's correct. And Arc Club de Nîmes arguably was one of the leaders in the effort to grow the sport of archery in France mm -hmm. on an international scale with the famous Nîmes European Championship with people like Olivier Griot and the staff that he used, which includes yourself at, at a certain point. Yeah. Did you build upon that when you came to WA and look at that as, okay, I had this experience helping Olivier with this big, really renowned international event. Did the elements of that come into play in terms of your philosophy with how you deal with growing the World Cup? I, I think so, definitely, because so I, I've been attending the, the Nimatri tournament since maybe I think 2004 and I'm in the club since 2008 being in the board of that club as well um, and I have a constant discussion on Olivier on many things and it's I probably owe you mo owe him most of what I do in archery right now and and Nîmes is definitely a good example on on how you can build the trust and the relationship with partners because that's what keeps the club alive keep the event alive uh, even in the pandemic because they run the event during the pandemic right. with the support of the local communities um, it's it's really a great job that they do there and the implication the involvement shows that everything is possible in archery because if you have the people that are willing to do so there's always a way a way to find your way in, in finding sponsors in, in building great events in improving the scenery that we're showing to TV so definitely I'm, I'm I'm constantly inspired by that club, by the experience I have with Nîmes and the events we're, we're holding there, that's for sure. I'm glad I asked about that. You know, you and I have never actually talked about that particular aspect of things, but that was my impression. You know, uh, I, I, I guess you could say in a way that, that Bruce Cull and Olivier have some things in common in terms of they come into the sport and they try to grow it in a way that's meaningful and concrete and measurable for sponsors, for stakeholders, that is people who are actually standing on the line and shooting arrows, or people who are coming in to do a trade show booth, things of that nature. And you know, people like Bruce and people like Olivier, and now people like yourself, um, have the business aspect of the sport as much as the pure sporting aspect of the sport. You know, some of us who are more com competition 
debased in our histories, uh, chose different paths to get into the business of archery. In my case, you know, engineering products. In your case, growing big events and becoming part of WA. Either way, kind of all working toward the same goal, you know, in terms of giving back to our sport that has made us who we are to some degree. Ah, I, I would agree 200% to that because, I mean, we all do that because we love the sport and, and we definitely want to find maybe different ways or other ways that may have been tried or may not have been tried to try to do things differently or improve things and, and try to give to do the best for our sport, growing at the maximum. So no, I, I really think that, that trying new ways, maybe if they're wrong, at least we need to try something mm. and, and make our sport grow. Uh, we always know where we come from, <coughs> we never know until where we can go. And, right. and those changes, I think, are, are helping growing the sport. Uh, we've improved the number of hours that we're we're broadcasting worldwide. Yeah. We're starting making revenue out of broadcast, which right. is also something that that was not so much the case before. Number one question that I get from people in my circles, where can I see it, right? So, for example, this particular event in the United States is on the Olympic Channel and many other countries yes. as well. In the past, you've been on Eurosport and yeah. I think still on some, some channels around uh, places like uh, in South Korea here. Yeah. Um, we've had some coverage from other regional broadcasting entities. I know that uh, in the past when the event has been in Shanghai, that CCT Chinese, Chinese TV has carried it. And that's a big audience, obviously. Yeah. Um, what does it take to, to keep the TV people engaged and happy with our sport the the format obviously matters and the, 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 the pace the format matters the pace matters the consistency matters because the fact that we are a reliable sport that we implemented blocks where our events are defined a year in advance or three years in advance also help our side for broadcasting purposes but also is aiming to help member associations continental associations to plan ahead their trials, their event, their world ranking event, um, all comes about being consistent in how we do things um, and, and the fact that we become a reliable sport, then some TVs are picking up our sport just because maybe there will be a hole in their programmation and they know that we'll be there to fill it in and like the sport and carry on with taking the sport. To your point. For instance. During the pandemic, there was a great interest in our sport because we were still able to put on some events when other sports were shut down. Yeah. And we were able to benefit from that. And I think that gave us a bit of momentum in some areas. So that's just a general observation, but I think that it, the, the, you said a product. Now, some people listening to this might say, well, that's not, it's, a, it's an archery event. It's a product. It is. It's a product that is deliverable to the sponsors, to the people who like to watch. When you watch other sports, it's good to be able to understand what's going on. Consistency is a point you brought up. Our sport has become more consistent. World Cup events are very consistent from the standpoint of how they're run. And in fact, this year, some improvements have been made in that area because now you have a consistent schedule for all the World Cups. We know exactly what's going to happen on what day, no matter where it is. 
We also know the timing, the, the length of the event. Now that is critical for television. And the other thing that's been done that generated a lot of angst among mostly club shooters was the change that Congress implemented to allow for a shorter time clock. And I had a wait-and-see approach to this. I will tell you firsthand, did not see a negative impact of any kind from the shorter time clock. I think it's actually really good because I think the archers enjoy it. I think the, the top archers are completely unaffected by it. The shooters who are not top archers have actually, some of them, improved because the time pressure required when they were a bit lazy maybe, or maybe that's the wrong word, but not necessarily as focused on the time, it's actually helped improve some of the shooters that I know that required a little more, uh, I don't know how to put it, I suppose, but, uh, you know, some folks do have a little time trouble, right? Yeah, and, and, and to come back on, on that timing thing, uh, I think it has impact and, and, and involved implications on so many levels. Like, for instance, indeed, having a shorter time, the people that were used to shoot at the end of the timing will maybe still shoot at the end. It will just come one minute earlier. Yeah. But also that change come from the fact that, and Tom told me about that, Tom Dillon, our Secretary General, told me about that, that there was a previous change many years ago from five to four minutes as yes, well. Yes, correct. And I believe that the, the, the change from four to three also follows a natural path of technique having improved, yep. less risk of injuries. Yep. And maybe also it will probably fix an issue that we start having in some events where people are tending to shoot too high poundage yes. with bows that are getting faster and faster where knocks might not be resistant enough. So it has a whole lot of implication that I think ultimately would make the sport better. And honestly, I was scared on the first World Cup to see what would be the impact on the shooting line. Right, right. And no, I still... Because none of us are really new. Oh. And I stood a, f a few a few ends on the shooting line in the 15 last second on the compound qualification line and recurve qualification line, and I didn't see many athletes left on the shooting line. Right. And I think also that people, are, if they are trained for that, they are adaptable. And I don't think that it will ultimately hurt the sport. I also deeply think that for a period that is very long in the event qualification, last two, three, four hours sometimes, yeah. uh, we need to show that the sport is dynamic. Yes. And removing that small minute yes. shows a lot more dynamism in the sport and there's less downtime during that qualification It's period. interesting. You phrased it exactly the way I would have phrased it. Using the exact same word, I would have said dynamism as well. And I think that that is very clear. That Again, you and I have not discussed any of this, but we have the same point of view on this, even though we come from very different perspectives in terms of time in the sport and that kind of thing. My perspective on it has also been... Um, you, you said something just now that never occurred to me, but I think is a very interesting consideration for coaches in particular, trainers, and that is it should encourage people to use more manageable weights that lead to fewer instances of potential injury because to shoot in the time frame required does require a certain amount of energy output and a lighter bow may very well be an advantage in some cases. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, 40 pounds versus 47 pounds, but I am talking about 47 pounds versus 53 pounds for some people. 
and that could be that could be something that could actually add to the sustainability of some of our athletes. I, I would definitely believe so, and and I think that that people now the way people are preparing to events, they're real athletes, meaning that they shoot a lot of arrows, right. they train a lot. Right. So there is no reason that we don't make the sport evolved in that way as well, and and follow that that change of mentality by the sport being more professional in certain ways. Absolutely. But also, going back to your point about it being a consistent product, quite frankly, faster rounds are better for television. They just are. I'm sorry, but that's just the case. That's the way it is. We all love to stand out there and shoot all day. Yeah. But at the end of the day, if we want to show something that a sponsor can get behind and, and something that television can get behind and be engaged in, we need something that is not going to bore people. Now, you know, now with the with the round the way it is, sometimes it's over before you even realize it. Yeah, sometimes sometimes it is when we have small lines or smaller lines that like we had here in in two hours and thirty minutes the qualification round was done. I was making a little joke about the first honest to goodness mistake that I've made in many many years when I didn't realize that a particular round was over today before it was over. So it was uh, in my in my uh, defense. Everybody up there didn't realize it was over, including the results team. So that, you know, it was one of those things. I, I did, but that's another matter. <laughs> yeah, but you didn't say anything. <laughs> so coming back to that, yeah. uh, let's turn around the table a bit and and asking you some question, George. Oh, no. Because you've been announcing at events since maybe more than I can recall. I mean, maybe it wasn't even born at that time. Uh, well, I, I started at the 92 Olympic Games in Barcelona. So I was born. But, so but you weren't very old. <laughs> so you've been doing that since a long time. Yeah. And obviously you've been doing that recently as well in a new format of events. You've been doing that in Yankton for the World Championship and the World Cup Final. You've been doing that here. How do you prepare to announce at an event like that? First, I'm particularly interested in several things as uh, an announcer for the sport on an occasional basis. I used to do it a lot more, of course. The first thing is I want the audience and the archers to enjoy what they're doing. I don't want to do or say anything that would create uh, uneasiness or affect the performance of any particular athlete. I think fun is an important element of our sport, and so I try to find some elements that could be fun. Even if it's for a small segment, only a few people got the joke, it can generate an atmosphere that's positive. Showing our sport in a positive way, creating excitement with the audience. It's the archers who create the excitement, but I think part of my job is to help them access it. And so um, keeping the audience informed of what's happening, because sometimes we have mixed audiences, they're not all archers, and providing for something that might also get the media interested in what we're doing, I think are important aspects of whoever is doing that type of job. Uh, it's one small element of all the moving parts that you manage, but it is an element that is very direct in terms of its impact on the people who are physically there, as well as to a smaller degree, the people who are listening or watching on television, because it does create some atmosphere. And I think that the primary role of the announcer in any of these events is what it has always been. Help to make what the archers are doing understandable and interesting for an audience that might not understand what's going on. Help them understand what the archer's mindset might be or what their challenge might be. 
say some things that would be very obvious to an archer but might not be obvious to a viewer so that they become immersed and engaged in what our sport is and at the end of the day if i've made a few people more excited about archery through that approach then i feel like that's a win for our, for our sport that's the spirit that i try to bring to that kind of thing to your specific question of how to prepare um, I think that there's a certain natural flow that every archery event has. All I have to do is help tell the story. Back in 92, Jim Easton made some very big, at the time, controversial changes to our sport, including head-to-head -head competition. And he asked me to put together a audio track for a video that had been shot to demonstrate this concept. The original video had an audio track that was very uh, old school from the standpoint of, you know, it just wasn't very interesting. But Jim asked me if I could do something better with it. And that's when I came up with the concept of calling the arrows live. Calling the arrows live and explaining to the audience immediately what it means when somebody shoots a 10 and somebody shoots a 9. And how many points they need to pick up in order to get back ahead or if we have a tie. All of that was alien to the sport before that. We progressed with that through the years. I did six Olympic Games. I did a bunch of world championships. All of them had an evolution, part of which is realized by the conversation we had a few minutes ago regarding timing and where we are right now in Gwangju, Korea. Things are very different today than they were in 92, and then they were in 96, and they were in 2000. The round changed. Early parts of our round had 18 arrow passes, and then you cut to 12 for the finals. Now we have set play, completely different, but fundamentally very easy to follow and fulfills the exact role that we've been working on over the years. Make archery interesting and accessible to non-archers or people with a little bit of curiosity or interest. With the ultimate goal, make more archers. That's the idea. Yeah, that's, I totally agree with your point, and, and it, it's it's true. That's that's what we're also looking when when we do the, this kind of announce during the event, uh, and no, keeping in mind that we have very two specific type of audience and at different moment of the competition because basically the week is dedicated to the athletes. All the information goes to the athletes, so they know the sport, they know what's happening. So it's a different aspect than what we do during the finals where. Our target and our side in meaningful world archery is to engage more people out of the sport mm -hmm. rather than just archers because archers, when they come to see finals venue, they know what's happening. They have a giant screen, they have scoreboards, they know what's happening. Yep. But the sports need explanation. It, it's it's not that easy as some might thought. It's it's and and part of the job of the announcer is is really to make that understandable by anybody. Now. How would you convince someone to become an announcer? How you would convince something, someone that is maybe 19, 20, 22 years old to become an archery announcer and do that on a regular basis? Well, it helps if you have basic skills in terms of being able to explain things to a crowd without being too concerned about, uh, you know, uh, getting nervous speaking in front of people. It's, it's helpful if you can speak naturally to people. It's particularly important to be able to understand exactly what's happening with, you know, a particular segment of the sport. Um, most archers can probably explain to someone what they're doing, uh, what's happening uh, 
on any given moment of an event. Making it interesting and understandable requires uh, some experience in public speaking. So I would suggest that people who have an interest in getting into a role of media, whether it involves announcing in a live venue or doing commentary on television, be expert at two things. The minutia of our sport, because that matters, and being able to tell stories or communicate with a group of people and make them comfortable and interested in what is going on. I think those are important things. Some people are natural at that, and some people can learn it. Either way, if you're inspired to try to take up the uh, very narrow and poor paying role of an archery announcer, it's like any other sports announcing. You just need to be able to tell the story and understand the sport really well. Thank you. <laughs> well, Tama, I just want to say that uh, I really appreciate everything you're doing to help grow our sport, grow these events, make these places happen, actualize ideas like, hey, we could have a World Cup here or we could have a World Cup.